0: Oh, wa alaikum assalam to the hurry. Alhamdulillah. How are you? Alhamdulillah. So, use the response was was a heart.
1: Oh, that's nice. We'll take that as a a good sign. Inshallah. Inshallah.
0: Inshallah, Andy. Uh Huh?
1: Yeah, inshallah, fair indeed.
0: It's... What people do for ego, man. Yeah. Uh, you know something I was wondering? Uh, I'll Just talk
1: what, to you later. I've get yeah, other yeah, people on the class,
0: yeah. as alaikum alaykum, mahan sahab.
2: Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Or as they say, wa barakatuhu. Ha
0: some people are incorrigible. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.
1: Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman <clears throat> ar-Rahim. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet. Alrighty, so continuing our ongoing exploration of causes and manifestations of rejection, we looked at um, yesterday, we looked at the the fact that the children of Israel, the love of the calf was coursing through their veins. And then from there, we also looked at different ways in which, or the consequences of that. And let me hold this up so we can look at this next sub subsection. That's about it. That's it, okay. So starting from Ayah 97, this next subsection, which goes on till give or take around, I have 103 or 106, we'll, we'll, we'll double check inshallah. It's wrong things that people do regarding the unseen. So we've talked about scripture, we've talked about oaths, then we, we had some causes and then manifestations and such. And now we're getting into elements of the unseen. And so what is taking place here is that for the children of Israel, they regarded Jibril, salam, as their enemy. Their angel was Mikail, salam. And, and so here, ayah 97 says, "Whoever is an enemy of Jibril, it is none but he who has brought the Quran to you, the Quran down upon your heart." O Muhammad, by the permission of Allah, be itnillah, confirming what was before it, and a guidance and good tidings for those who are believers whoever is an enemy to Allah and his angels and his messengers and Jibreel and Mikhail, then indeed Allah is an enemy to the disbelievers, to the Kafirs. Good. And in fact, let's just stop right there. This for our purposes is a very, very simple point. Uh, that we have belief, for example, in the angels. Why? Simple question. And let me make sure like the chat chat's there. That's been available and yeah. So why do we feel free to type or to speak? Preferably speak, but typing is fine. Why do we believe in the angels? Yeah, simply because we're told that Allah says that there are angels. Meaning elements in the unseen uh, are are beyond potential proof we take them as true and think about all of the 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 different types of angels that there are right there are some angels whose entire purpose of existence is to do sajda to Allah for a day and then they get replaced by another swarm of angels for lack of a better word swarm the number is usually 70,000, which often is interpreted to mean many. They're replaced the next day by another group of angels whose whole job is to do the to Allah, right? We have the big angels like Jibril, alayhi salam, Mikail, we have the angel of death. We also have the angels that are sort of the, the enactors of the punishments of Allah on the day of judgment. We have the angels that are operating and keeping the gates to the different levels of paradise closed. Uh, and so, so the point is that we have many, many, many different angels. Why does Allah, tell Allah have this whole structure? The only answer is because, you know, there might be some philosophical way to try to make sense of it all. But even of those seventy thousand angels, if you skip five, okay, it doesn't change any philosoph- any philosophical theory that we would have. So ultimately, why does he have angels? Because he does. And, and for you and I, it's not really a big issue to, to lay claim or to, to accept the existence of all the angels. Uh, but a way this is understood is that if you reject one, it's tantamount to rejecting it all. Not uncommon, not unlike in terms of the rules of Hanafi fiqh in particular. And I'm giving you a tangent that hopefully is not going to confuse everything, but more likely it will. So Hanafi fiqh merges theology with law. Okay. So for example, something that is considered to be fard in Hanafi fiqh the first thing I have to do is I have to acknowledge that it is fard. And then the second is that I actually have to fulfill it. Now, if I acknowledge that it's fard and I'm not fulfilling it, then I'm committing a sin, right? I'm not making my prayers I'm supposed to make. But what about the reverse? Suppose I make it uh, I make my, my, let's say, my Isha prayers, but I do not regard them as mandatory. What is in the Hanafi school, what is the consequence of that? It is tantamount to kufr. So not sin, rejection of faith. See what we're saying? That in the Hanafi school, the argument is that if something is regarded as fard, it means it is categorically clearly mandatory by a delivered to the Prophet peace be upon him. And so if I do not regard it as mandatory, then I'm effectively saying that the Prophet peace be upon him did not, did not tell the truth. This is not the case in the other three big schools. They don't. They don't get into this, but the Hanafi school merges theology with law. Yeah. So, so what is the point that I'm making? How do I how do I link this with the angels? So basically, those things that were commanded to do in the Hanafi school, first step is to acknowledge. Yeah, this is this is. These are all commands.
3: So Omar, what is the other schools of thought? Is briefly,
1: Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali.
3: No, no. What is their What is their belief?
1: Oh, the, they don't. Uh, uh, they don't include theology. Their only focus is on, on action.
3: Actions, okay. okay.
1: So, so let's take it. Uh, so, so the, just to finish the point that I was making, that likewise, those things that are that are considered to be categorical commands, my obligation is to accept them all, okay. whether I can see some logic behind it or not. Likewise, with the angels, with the elements of the unseen, my obligation. Just accept it all okay. as a truth as a true thing meaning does Allah need any of the angels obviously not but he set up the system to have all of these angels okay. just to, to make the point a little bit further in the Hanafi school that which is categorized as wajib what is the stance of those things what do you think So Wajib, you know, when we teach in Sunday school, we say, Fard, you absolutely have to do Wajib. You really need to do so, no, you, you should do it. Enough. It's, it's a good thing to do. That's actually wrong. Wajib in terms of obligation to do in the Hanafi school, it's equal to Fard. So, so the Hanafi school argues that Eid prayer is Wajib. You have to do it. But that first step that I talked about, those things that are farth in the Hanafi school, if it's if the hanafi school categorizes it farth it means i have to recognize it as farth yeah. if the hanafi school categorizes it as wajib i don't have to categorize it as mandatory i could say it's technically sunnah and it doesn't knock me out of islam okay And the concept is actually far easier to comprehend than to explain. To explain it, it's almost like you just keep tripping over yourself. So looking at this from another perspective, if it's farther than the Hanafi school, you can be sure it's Wajib or farther than all the other schools. In the other schools farther than Wajib, it's the same thing. So basically the Hanafi school is saying the proofs for this being mandatory are so clear, everybody agrees. But then you have some things like Wither, You have things like uh, Eid prayer, where the Hanafi school says using our methods, this is actually mandatory. But other people are arguing no, it's not mandatory. Okay. So you're knocked out, not knocked out of Islam if you say no, it's not mandatory. Okay. So in other schools, Eid prayers will be Sunnah. Okay. And the Hanafi school it's wajib. And so, so it's a subtle point that, again, I probably confuse you all more than actually help you. But, but the basic point being that I'm connecting this to the idea of angels, that at one level, it's a matter of just uh, accepting this is truth it, or this is mandatory. Good. Why? Just because it is. Now, that primarily applies, you know, like I said, to matters of the unseen or matters of acts of worship. When we get into matters of social interaction and such, then then everything becomes a much more uh, negotiation with context and things like that. But so essentially I'm saying, try to put how we perceive of angels and such and how we perceive of acts of worship in the same part of your brain. So, which again, may or may not have helped, maybe totally confuse you and just ruined everything you learned in this class. Anyway, so, so one point here is that we accept angels and accept all of them again. This is this is a harder point to actually discuss because for us it's like okay, fine, you know, that we tend to have a much more submissive role uh, in terms of uh, accepting the beliefs regarding the unseen. So <laughs> related to this further, we've talked about levels of of akida. So here we are returning with my trusty whiteboard. Okay, let me just clear out some of these windows for me. Okay, so so sort of second level of First level is just the shahada. And this I'm just giving it the name second level of level, aqidah. meaning if I believe in the shahada, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, then as a consequence I believe in these things. And you already know this, we believe in Allah and this we've talked about it's actually a review the angels, books, messengers, last day, divine decree, rising from the dead. Right, this is the common list, right? So and so on. Okay. Divine decree, positive or negative. So what is this list giving me? Because you'll notice that jinns are not part of this list. So, what is it that's common about these elements? Uh, especially as they relate to the unseen, these are different ways that Allah reveals his will. That Allah self-discloses. That Allah reveals his will. Through angels, through the books, and then uh, relate to the books, through the messengers. Uh, And an ultimate revelation will be uh, the last day, the day of judgment itself, which includes the rising from the dead and divine decree is the whole process of allah's self-disclosure so so this is this is the unseen and then again this is all still review think about how we distinguish between aqidah versus usul ad-deen versus kalam the generic term uh, for for Islamic theology is kalam, but these are the, the the big categories. Anybody remember what's the difference between these three? This was one semi-random lecture long, long ago. So. So essentially, Aqidah would be, uh, so commonly translated as creed. This is concrete elements of the unseen. Meaning things in the unseen that I have to take as true. Things in the unseen that are regarded as concrete. And so Usuluddin would essentially be the philosophical underpinnings. How does this all work? How does it all fit together? Does it need to fit together? All those types of questions. And then again, what is Kalam? We often call this dialectical theology. Our answers to their questions. And so the first category, the goal is to avoid speculation. It's basically... You know, a normal Aqidah text is probably, if you just write it in prose, it's probably about a page long. Okay. It's the commentaries that get really huge. So it, so what is the most common Sunni text of Aqidah, the Aqidah of Imam al-Tahawi, which itself is a rewriting of Abu Hanifa's book? I mean, if you just wrote that in simple prose, that whole book would literally be less than a page. It'd be like three paragraphs. Okay. But then you gotta put in a nice paper and you gotta have nice commentary and all that stuff. And then it's 300 pages long. But the actual text is literally a page. Because you're just looking at what is concrete in in the unseen. Now, a mistaken notion uh, is that those conversations are complete. Because, like I said, Imam al-Tahawi's book, which is from around the 900s, it's a rewriting of Abu Hanifa's book, which is from the 700s. Uh, there are elements that Imam al-Tahawi has added that the scholarly community has decided this is also concrete. And one example would be the relationship between Allah and the Quran. Good. That they have decided okay, you need to take this as a matter of concrete belief okay, that the Quran is uncreated, that it is the speech of Allah. Okay. Uh, so, the point being that if we are to write that book again in 2020, and it's almost blasphemous uh, in many people's ears for me to say this, the book would change because some of our theological questions have changed. And one example is that, you know, today who cares if, if the Quran is, is uh, the uncreated word of Allah. It's irrelevant for, for the belief of people in the way it was very relevant for a different generation. Good. But that would first be explored in a Suluddin. And the Sul-ud-din is very speculative. And then Kalam, I gave the example before, so what are the big questions in the air? And then because there are these big questions in the air, they affect the belief of Muslims, one would be evolution. You know, Do we believe that evolution happened? Do we believe that it happened the way Darwin said, or, or later evolutionary biologists have said? that is, becomes a question that affects people's faith, where they feel like they need to have a stance. And so this is what Kalam would be. But another point I'd like you to consider is if there was another school or another approach or another genre of theology, what could that be? So a way to think about this would be, you know, what is a modern question that's been there in the past, but is much more uh, uh, in the open? It would be, what's the relationship between governance and theology? Not in the sense of a theocracy. I'm saying in the context of a democracy. Okay. So for example, uh, there's a basic principle that, you know, only Allah and then by extension, the prophet peace on can determine for us what is shirk. Okay. And therefore, by extension, what is tawhid? But in the 20th century, there's been this push for this idea of tawhid Hakimiya, which is the oneness of God and manifested through governance. And so in the traditional schools, it seems like that idea got rejected because like, hey, where are you guys coming up with this? And then the, the people, the social activists, you know, often in the khilafa movement are pushing back saying this is... Um, no this is this is a theological question that if you have popular sovereignty then by definition that is shirk okay. so that would be something that would have to be explored usually all the stuff begins in a suluddin which is just this general general category but that would be you know perhaps something of its own genre okay. so you see the point that i'm making that all of this is speculation into the unseen or in the case of Aqidah, it's concrete elements of the unseen. And so the default to take with matters of the unseen is that first, if Allah says it's true, you take it as true. But how, the why, the what, you know, we often say bila So so basically Allah Ta'ala says he has a throne. And then we have, you know, these hadith about the day of judgment where where you know, Musa, peace be upon him, is going to be one of the people at the throne of Allah. And when I, every time I'm hearing throne, I'm picturing this massive, solid, gold, ornate chair. Okay. Uh, and so we say, if Allah says it, then it's true. The specifics of it, you know, be lucky if we don't know how. Of course, you're going to have throughout the centuries, you're going to have uh, entire schools of theology, some that are going to say this is literate, literal. Allah has hands the way we think of hands. He has eyes the way we think of eyes. The other end of the spectrum will say, no, this is all totally metaphor. Good. And of course, what's sort of the happy medium? The happy medium is what I'm saying, which is basically the word of Allah is true. What does he mean by it? You know, who knows? And he may eventually reveal it to us. Good. But all of that is the journey into the unseen. So the default is if Allah says it's there, done, it's there. He says there's angels. We accept there are, there are angels. What do they look like? What do you all picture when you're picturing an angel? Do you picture, you know, this man in a white robe with with wings? Yeah. Anybody picture anything else? That for whatever reason, oh, comet, interesting. Whatever reason, when I think of the angels that are just, their whole job is to do sazat to Allah, For whatever reason, I think of them as like these, you know, beams made out of light. Yeah, it's like a humanoid body, but I'm thinking of like, you know, like they're just light in this darkness. Yeah, we have very little to to, to work on. You know, we have narrations that Jibril, alayhis salam has how many wings? He has 600 wings. Try try to even comprehend that, okay. Or what else that could mean other than wings, mountain of light, very nice, yeah. And and so then on top of that, all right, if they're not bound by physics, then why do they they need wings in the first place? Then what is the purpose of wings? All of those questions would be speculative. The fact of wings is what we take as concrete.
2: So quick question. Yes, sir. If we begin to move towards, instead of thinking of angels as ontologically real entities, as psychological states, would that take you to a different kind of place in theology?
1: Uh, I think uh, as a question to raise, it's as valid as every other question, you know, I mean, we're so as long as people would argue that, okay, Allah says it's a thing, it's a thing. What is the nature of this thing? Then uh, I think, you know, especially uh, in terms of like reconnecting it with modern psychology and such, uh, I think uh, we would find this venturing more into, you know, the realm of the Sufis. You know, uh, I think even if we take. Angels, as you know, I like your words, ontologically real. Okay, and at the same time, took them as states. Uh, I think we can also reconcile those two, because what the challenge will be is to really reframe how are we perceiving things. But uh, uh, I think uh, I think it would be uh, a very very fun question to explore.
0: I want to translate this conversation though. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, well, in a second so I think it would be a very fun question to explore in terms of what we can perhaps discover about our perceptions of reality what do you think?
2: no no I agree I think one of the big questions today is just how we think about the occult mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our religion so you know shaitan is real innahu lakum aduhum mu'bin and angels are real and then women tying knots blowing on knots and doing black magic is real i don't know why you know there's a gendered aspect of that and so we have these beliefs in these things acting in the world and then we recite and you know blow on ourselves to protect ourselves from these things and um you know that doesn't quite cohere with our materialist understanding of how natural mm-hmm. uh, the natural world works. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot more, maybe some kind of articulation that's ne- needed there today.
1: Yeah, I would agree. So, so to try to translate some of this for, for, for everyone else <clears throat> at the time of, of the prophet peace be upon him, they <clears throat> looked at the world in a particular mm-hmm. way, right? you know, I introduced this a little bit, talking about the difference between a subjective view of the world and an objective. And I was suggesting back then, there was actually a subjective view of the world. It's when the science era comes that that the objective started becoming dominant. But think for example, when the prophet peace be upon him is sending, I wanna say it was Ali, this is after the conquest of Mecca. And after this time had expired, uh, uh, the prophet peace be upon him was sending uh, various, various uh, companions, and someone correct me if I'm messing up the history, but I'm pretty sure I'm correct, to destroy some of these temples. Okay. And this one temple, uh, and I, like I said, I think Ali was sent to, to destroy it. Okay, like to destroy this idol okay. in this temple. So the temple might've been saved or not, but the idols inside were being destroyed um, all across Arabia. And then the prophet asked him, what did you see? And he said, I saw a black woman, a naked black woman walking out of it. And, and the prophet seemed to confirm. And so, so
0: was it, it was Khalid bin Walid. Uh-huh. Okay,
1: okay. So, so yeah, um, And so when you and I are hearing this story, we're imagining some, you know, Nubian African woman but what was he seeing? Uh, I think that, that, uh, that, uh, that's wide open grounds for speculation. Uh, Iqbal, I'm not talking about what did he interpret, I'm saying what did he see? What, the words he's using is a black woman, but maybe he saw something completely different from what we're imagining. And and so <clears throat> apply this then to another example when we're thinking of angels and when we're thinking of Jibril alayhis salam, uh, you know, coming to the cave. We're thinking of Jibril alayhis salam in the form of a man hugs the Prophet peace be upon him so tight. But then the narrations, other narrations, that speak of it. Uh, speak of that meeting, not as though Jibril alayhis salam is in the form of a man but is in the form of light. And then this light is hugging him. Now, when I say that, chances are you're all imagining the same thing I imagine, which is like this light is now going all around him and and such. But I'm suggesting everything you and I are imagining is more related to the, the limits or the consciousness of what we have in our time and place. So, in the ayah that literally I just read, where it said that uh, Allah, that um, whoever is an enemy to Jibreel, it is none but him who brought the Quran down upon your heart. Uh, Does that mean that uh, Jibreel is speaking words to the Prophet, peace be upon him? So this is one of those theological points of, of speculation that uh, <clears throat> when Jibreel a. is saying Iqra, we all imagine Jibreel is speaking Iqra to the Prophet peace be upon him, the Prophet is hearing Iqra, rabbika, so forth and so on. But what if we modify this to say that every time Jibreel a. is bringing wahi, he's actually depositing something into the Prophet peace be upon him. And the result is that coming out of the prophet's mouth is the ayah. See the difference? How do we commonly teach it? The angel is giving him a sentence in ayah. It may or may not be a sentence, but a set of words or set of letters. The prophet is hearing it, memorizing it, and then preaching it. But I'm saying, what if you reframe that thinking to this angel is making something happen to the prophet, peace be upon him. That if a witness saw it, they would not be hearing words. Okay. You know, in the same way that telecommunication signals are not words. Okay. But what is coming out of the Prophet peace be upon him is this exact ayah. Quick, real thing.
2: Question. Yeah. So, and I know Fazur Rahman went in this direction, and he was got into a lot of trouble for it. But since, since we're there, would you say that if this something were to have happened to the prophet in a place other than 7th century Arabia, that he could possibly have uttered different words in a different language mm. with, the so same, that, with, with the same revelation?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I would say potentially yes. But in that situation, I would say it's um, it's like a second level of speculation. Okay. So one level is I'm just saying that in the moment that we understand it, that Jibreel Salam puts an exact dosage of whatever it is. So let's even say let's to, to put it in science, you know, scientific language, Jibreel Salam puts an exact set of neurons into the Prophet's brain which will result in exactly this ayah, okay? And so if the prophet peace be upon him is, you know, living in a different land and suppose, and I'm suggesting it's the exact same neurons, the words that would come out would be exactly what Allah willed, which could potentially be in a different language, yeah. But I'm saying that's a second level, that's a second level uh, speculation. It would be kind of like asking, okay, if the prophet was alive today, what, what career would he be in? Yeah. And and so I'm saying potentially, yeah, but the, the key point that I'm making is that it's not always that Jibril Islam is giving words that are heard, but the consequence every time is sets of words. So so Stephanie Mirza, let me know. Uh, uh, I think I need more in terms of, of your question. Uh, are, you, are you regarding in, inspiration different than revelation when you're asking of that? And then Musab, uh, I heard that the prophet said that Jibril was in his true form when he came to the prophet peace be upon him. So the, so the prophet peace be upon him, it, it has a couple of interactions with Jibril, right? It's in the cave, then on his way home, and then while he's at home. And and so when he's in the cave, I don't know that, that Jibril was in his true form whatever that is, because I'm also putting that in quotes because can I see that with human eyes? And second, when he is coming home, he al-Islam is taking up the entirety of the horizon. And I'm imagining 360 degrees, not 180 degrees. Good. Okay. You know, or whatever would be half of a sphere, like everything. Okay. And then when the Prophet peace of one is wrapped up, Jibril islam is speaking to him then too. And and so, yeah, don't know. Uh, so so, uh, Stephanie, Mirza, in your case, I'm suggesting that it's still wahi, meaning <coughs> the distinction I'm giving between wahi and you know, for example, ilham. So so, what I'm translating is inspiration. Is that you know, it 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 causes something, you know, some response. Uh, one of many responses of the Prophet peace be upon him. But I'm still suggesting that what Jibreel a.s. is depositing in the prophet in his heart, you know, which I like to think of it as like a deposit of light in his heart, uh, the only result is the ayah from that specific deposit. So, so what is coming out of the prophet's mouthpiece behind him, that he's sharing with the companions is the same. Although sometimes Jibreel a.s. is speaking to the prophet in the way we would imagine, uh, but sometimes he's doing other things. But, you know, the, the, but it's still, it's his processing, his choice is not part of the process. It's involuntary what is coming out of his mouth. If that, if that helps inshallah. so. Yeah. That part, I'm still, sad. that's part I'm still suggesting. The only thing i essentially what I'm suggesting is that not always is it words that he's receiving, okay. but it's always words that he is saying. Uh, Dr. Ghazi,
0: uh, you raise your hand. And going back to Mahan and uh, uh, Steph's point, uh, this is, is considering that we are living in a, a primarily biblical society or a Christian thing, uh, has very tremendous implications in terms of revelation and inspiration. Because uh, to articulate this to a Christian audience is a very difficult and a very... Uh, uh, very nuanced or very delicate venture. I mean, I've tried and I've failed uh, on a couple of times. Second is, what does it do to uh, uh, to the general notion of Quran being the uh, the word of God or the speech of Allah? As Muhammad mentioned, Fazlur Rahman got into this trouble with uh, Quran also being the speech of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And, uh, and, and then uh, the issue, of, I mean, for me personally, it basically, uh, I find comfort in the Hadith where the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi is reciting the Quran to Jibril and in the last Ramadan recited it twice. Mm-hmm. For me, that basically just means that a reconfirmation that this is what Allah had wanted us to get and this is what the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi then put out. I mean, any comments?
1: So, I mean, uh, the part that I'm, I'm, I'm still emphasizing is that from the prophet's perspective, peace be upon him, it's involuntary. So, meaning, uh, I am not regarding him as consciously having part of the choice of what words to use. Uh, and so sometimes he's receiving words, sometimes he's receiving this, this dosage but the, the result of what he is saying is involuntary. So I'm suggesting um, the only thing that we're doing is we're expanding how he's receiving it. But nothing else is changing in the story. What do you think? How
0: would you tie in the Sabah Aruf with that? I mean, I I, I have an idea for myself, but I would like to hear what how you tie the Sabah Aruf in the.
1: Yeah, so so he is going back to Jibril, alayhi salam, asking for you know, a variation of, of this ayah. So for those, uh, 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 you might remember way early in the class, we talked about the different ahruf that the Prophet peace be upon him receives an ayah. And then he goes to Jibril and says, I have people, you know, of different tongues. And he asks for a variation of the ayah, not of the qiraat, but the actual words. And, and then Jibril comes back to him and says, Allah Ta'ala has heard and answered your prayer. And he gives him another variation. So it's like a minor modification of the dose, you know, with the involuntary result coming from the Prophet's mouth, peace be upon him. Um, Leith. Um,
4: yeah, just going back to the discussion uh, we were having earlier about, um, like you're saying, like Gabriel speaking, our conception of Gabriel speaking to the Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, versus him. Um, communicating to him in some other way um, and and that you know what that says about the nature of Gabriel himself how do we think about that in terms of like the Hadith of Gabriel when he comes as a man so are we to conceive then that Gabriel that that's a representation of Gabriel or is do we do we take that to be him in his entirety in the same way that you know when he spreads his wings and he uh, covers the horizon is that like an equivalency or
1: okay so so I'm cautious about some of these words that we're using, like representation and such, or is this the entirety of him? Yeah. Meaning uh, the Sahaba see this man, and this man is identified as Jibril, right? And and so does that mean uh, Jibril, salam is dressed in a costume? You know, is he taking this form of a man? Sure, for any of those. See what I'm saying? This then gets into this is these are the things that 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 theology would be speculating about. Okay. Right. Uh, but meaning, so what is necessary for me to regard? The prophet is speaking the truth. Yeah. Okay. And in the same way that we said that, okay, Allah has these attributes and textbooks, Sunni theology is what? That these attributes, the actual meaning of them, we try to comprehend. But the actual meaning of them is whatever Allah ta'ala says the meaning is, yeah. and so likewise here we have Sahaba who we regard purely as human beings, yeah. um, and they're seeing this man, yeah. and you know who gets, who talks to the Prophet peace upon him, asks questions, leaves. Yeah. Uh, but what did the Prophet peace be upon him see? Yeah. Did he see the same thing that they saw? That's where I think the fun part of the discussion is. Give you a different example of that <laughs> relate to your question. So think of the example where those uh, those people I forgot who it was they were insulting uh, Abu Bakr, yeah. and and Abu Bakr is silent, and he corrects something that someone says, or you know he uh, he is responding to something that someone says, and the Prophet has a look of surprise and he walks away. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Abu Bakr or goes to the prophet peace upon him and I'm paraphrasing and says, okay, when I was silent, you stood there, but when I responded and defended myself, you walked away. And so he's asking, you know, like what happened? And the prophet peace upon him was saying that when you were standing there silent, I saw these angels around you defending you, okay? But as soon as you open your mouth, the angels went away. Okay. So scenario one, what is the Prophet seeing in, in all these moments versus what the Sahaba are seeing? Okay, and then scenario two, uh, when the angels are defending, when he is seeing the angels defending the pro, uh, uh, Abu Bakr, what are they doing? Are you picturing them with swords, you know? Or are they perhaps getting into the mind of the Kafirs and confusing them, you know? And so, so again, what is the overall point of the discussion? The point of the discussion is that the starting material is we take all this as truth. Good. You know? But then when we start trying to make further sense of it, then this becomes very, very highly speculative. But the benefit of the speculation is other doors that might be open. The risk of the speculation, as you would imagine, is that it could totally lead us off the path. Good. But yeah. Uh, so let's see, uh, Omar al-Khadra. So as soon as the revelation comes, the prophet starts involuntarily saying what the revelation is. I mean, I think that's sort of how we understand it that the Prophet, peace be upon him, you know, he speaks of of the moments of revelation in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's the sound of bells and and that he says is the heaviest, the most difficult. And then sometimes the angel Jibril comes to him in the form of a man, okay? Not unlike the Sahaba saw, but in this case, it looks like this guy, this companion, Dihya al-Kalbi. And I always forget the third way that is commonly stated, but... Um, but <clears throat> The Sahaba aren't saying that the man who walked in looked like Dihya al-Kalbi, so that's another form that Jibreel el seems to be taking. And then uh, scholars are then saying that, okay, when you hear bells chiming, you usually can't tell where they're coming from. And so perhaps what the the Prophet peace be upon him is saying is that I, I hear the sound of bells, but I can't pinpoint it from a dunya perspective of location that's all the speculation part. What is the truth part? The prophet says, it sounds like bells. But the speculation is trying to make sure what happens. But yeah, uh, uh, Omar, to your question, I'm, uh, I'm understanding it is exactly as what you're saying. That he receives it and he speaks it. Okay. Uh, meaning, I don't know of any, I can't remember any case where he receives a revelation and he holds off on saying it. Okay, uh, Ramya, are there different levels of belief with regard to the items included in the second level of Aqidah? And so what was the implication or the consequences for those? So essentially this comes down to more what, where is a person in their deen? And so, so if you have a person who's a brand new Muslim, then their desire is, I wanna learn as much as I, want, I can, but often the goal as you know from me, is to keep the person slowed down and all you do is focus on the Shahada, And then you add this list. Good. And then you add uh, another list. You know, you believe in Allah with all of his attributes and his commands and you strive with your tongue and your heart to fulfill them. And then you can go and add uh, other things. Good. Um, and even, I mean, relate to this point, uh, related to Dr. Ghazi's point about, about uh, a Christian environment, you know, I, I think it's, uh, our under, our depiction, our imaginations of angels is informed by Christian imagination of angels. Okay. But I even wonder if Christian imaginations of angels, if we were going to go back like 400 years, it's actually coming from our imagination of angels back then. You know.
0: Just a comment, Umar. you know, yep. uh, the key point over here that was absent in my discussions was uh, the involuntary part of the Rasul Yes. Somewhere, I think that's where the key, uh, that's where the key was.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, where uh, Fazur Rahman is potentially getting in trouble. Part of where he's getting in trouble is citing this particular ayah to refute the possibility of things like the Hadith of Jibril, you know, or the narrations that Jibril came in some, some sort of seemingly physical form. And then the other is, is the question of how much uh, volition did he have in making an ayah as an ayah? And so on that, I still tend to side with what is, you know, my understanding of the general mainstream view that he had, um, uh, what's the word? Um, he, it was involuntary, but suppose it wasn't vol- it wasn't involuntary. Suppose he is part of the process. That's a question that can be asked. Uh, Does the prophet peace stay conscious while he's getting revelation? So he does also receive revelations when he's asleep. So the big categories of revelations are, you know, maki madani, right? Those are the big ones that we're all familiar with. But then we also have numerous other categories. Was he at home or was he outside of the home? Was he uh, at home or was he in travel? And was he awake versus was he asleep? And so, So it's good that you put conscious uh, while uh, in quotes because we'd say yes, but then the theological speculation would goes into what does that mean? And so again, what is the key thing to take of what we're saying here? That what is the default that I'm obligated to? I take these words as truth. The second I try to start you know, making sense of it in a worldly perspective or in my world, now we're getting to theological speculation. Which I'm still, I'm saying is a necessary thing because a lot of times there's questions that we need to answer. And a lot of times I think it opens up another possibility. Because like, for example, if I'm saying that the prophet peace be upon him received these doses, then what is one of the consequences of what I'm saying? I'm saying you can't separate the prophet from the Quran which is something I've been saying in this class since day one, right? You can't separate the the Prophet from the Quran. On the shelf, you have the Quran, you have the hadith, et cetera. But the actual person, you can't separate from the Quran. And I'm saying that because of this this specific point that I'm making. That I think is a beneficial understanding. Where theology often goes wrong is when it starts becoming exclusive. That anything beyond this first, second level type stuff—if you start adding other things—if okay, you don't believe this, then you're kafir. That's where theology goes wrong. You know, that's a and that's a very big problem throughout the ummah today and in history. Any other questions, uh, Doctor Malahat? I don't understand your point. I have had up for last fifteen minutes. Don't know what this.
0: He's had his hand up for the last 15 minutes.
1: Oh, really? Okay, it's not
3: showing it to me. Go for it. Okay, so I have two questions. One is that, you know, the um, first one is that, uh, what about that saying that uh, the Quran will be descended on Nuzul, of Quran in Arabic language? And second is, what is the significance, what you guys discussed in the last 15, 20 minutes, about the Nasir and Mansur?
1: Okay, Nasekh and Mansukh, we're literally going to be getting into in about five ayahs, so that I'm going to hold off, you know, but um, in terms of the Quran being, so the first part is, okay, so, so we're using the word descended, right? And Mm -hmm. so which way is up?
3: I don't get it. I'm sorry. Okay.
1: So... So, if we're saying descended, we're thinking of it's coming from up down to where the prophet is, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, so up is always going to be the sky. Up is, in my language,
3: from my understanding is from Allah subhanahu wa taala to Muhammad uh-huh.
1: in Arabic. Okay, so where is what is the direction when it's going from Allah to the prophet peace be upon him? Is it going? down right okay and I'm asking what is down <laughs> I don't know if, if Allah is not part of our
3: I think you know, I think is it, I think he speak that 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 for me is more like earthly facts right that you know Muhammad Sallam exists on the time of Nuzul is where on earth right He's on the earth and the part okay. of the area he was presence
1: is is speaking Arabic Okay, okay, that's the second half. We'll get to the second half in a second. Half. I'm talking about the first half. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Zalat and right? So I'm basically asking when it's going from Allah ta'ala to Bayt al Ma'mur, okay, to the Prophet, peace be upon him, is it going from high to low, like the way I'm doing with my hands?
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't see your hand, but yeah, definitely. High, high uh, to
1: low. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we can say that it basically means whatever Allah tells says it means and and so what if we change it to from hidden to seen so it's in the realm of the ghaib into the dunya and that's what high to low means hmm the Arabic part, I don't think that's a, that's a, as much of a, a of an issue, because involuntarily the Prophet peace be upon him is speaking it in Arabic. What is he receiving? Maybe it is possible that Allah Taala is revealing Arabic words to the angels, then it's then being delivered by the Prophet peace be upon him. Uh, delivered to the prophet peace be upon him also in Arabic, right? Maybe from an, <laughs> an angle. Okay, so maybe, or maybe it's this light that for the angels, they understand that to be Arabic, but when it comes out of the prophet's mouth, peace be upon him, it's Arabic. Who knows? I'm saying none of this contradicts uh, uh, any of that. I'm just saying it opens up the dimensions of what that could mean widely here. Okay, so let let me make a, a, a simpler version of, this, of of the question. Okay, and this we've talked about before so when, when the Quran is saying people will be in, in Jannah forever okay, I suggested back then that time does not necessarily apply in Jannah the way it applies in dunya and so whatever forever means that they're going to abide there in forever who knows what that means from a Jannah perspective?
3: So what the language would be then? Binary?
1: <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but the, so so the point is that uh, again, the words are truth. When we're trying to understand them, then we're getting into interpretation. And interpretation includes speculation. You know so, speculation so, you, so you're educated guesses. It,
3: you're saying that the Quran does not have a literal
1: meaning at all? I'm saying the Quran is not limited to a literal meaning.
3: But does no, but my, this is not my question. My question is, Is the Quran have a literal meaning or not?
1: I would say uh, uh, that much of the Quran is definitely literal, yes.
3: So if you, if you take the literal meaning, then the second stage is the, you know, go for the insightful or you can go for the next level, right? But mostly the Quran will be available in the
1: literal meaning too. Okay, so what I'm saying is that uh, if we were to put everyone's opinions together and ask which, what is literal and what is metaphorical, okay, that there's some things that all of us would probably agree on. La ilaha illallah, right? We're all gonna agree that that's literal, okay? You know, that you have to pray. That's literal. Okay. What about the depiction of paradise? But those are unseen, right? Yeah, so that means some of it's definitely not literal.
3: But, but the musaf necessarily it, literal. But the musaf is in my hand is in Arabic. And, okay. and and the saying is that, you know, this is the same Musaf without any changing, came to Muhammad Sallallahu Okay, keep going. And handed over to the Ummah. Okay. So so for me is a literal is that you know the Quran is in Arabic.
1: So what what you're talking about is the actual words. I'm talking about the meaning. I'm not disagreeing about the words. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Meaning the point I keep saying is we take the words as truth. I'm addressing the issue of the meaning, the interpretation. Make sense?
3: Yeah. Yeah, sure.
1: So what we're reciting, I believe is the same thing, word for word that the prophet peace on is reciting. Yes. Okay. Uh, Sami, more superficial question. Did Angel Mikhail bring down Musa's scripture or was it Jibril? I, I, I thought it was Jibril for everything. Uh, Mikhail is more of like a defending angel. Uh, but I thought Jabel islam was the one who brought all Wahidan. wahid down. Um, that would be something I'd have to look up. Someone mentioned something about Musab's question. Musab, um, uh, hey, can I ask you to uh, repeat your question? Um, does it make sense what we're saying? Yeah, a little bit. Good. Okay. I mean, the key point, I mean, I think what you're asking is, are these the same words that the prophet peace on recited and that you're holding in front of you? And I believe 100%, yeah, they are the same words.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. I'm talking about the meaning of them. Yeah. Uh, I heard that the prophets, oh yeah, that, that I thought I, I answered. that. Um,
3: I, and also that, you know, I think uh, someone mentioned about, uh, or oh, since the is that the Jibril came in the form of I think Jibril came on the form of prophet, right? I forgot the name of the prophet, but he came in the form of prophet and then he decided, right, the Quran. When he asked about this Hadith uh, al-Qudsi, about this, asking about the Iman, Islam, Hassan. So that time I think Jibreel came to Prophet in the form of some prophet of a, of or a some, some sahabi.
1: Of a person. Uh, not, as a person, right? Yeah, meaning there the sahabas are saying it. Right. And and I'm saying, even in that moment, what was the Prophet, peace be upon him, seeing? Was he right, seeing right. the same thing that the Prophet, that the Sahabas were seeing? Who knows? I think it's fun to think about the possibility he was seeing something else.
3: Right, or you know. seeing more than what he's seeing, right? or yes, the prophet, yeah. Sahabas are seeing.
1: Yeah, you know? and because he also talks about how the fact that he sees, you know, uh, Jannah right in front of him. You know. You know. Uh, other questions? Uh, Leith, were you about to ask a question? Uh, yeah, just, I
4: mean, going back to the, uh, to the Ayah, how does this relate back to the children of Israel? So do we, are
1: we saying that they... They rejected I mean, is this Okay. Yeah. You'll find that in some streams of American Judaism as well, uh, where Gabriel is looked at as an enemy. And the so, sort of like the patron angel is Michael. Yeah, uh, Sami, I used to know why, but I've actually forgotten. This is something I'd have to look up. So, so what is the, the, the hope of today's discussion? One, again, is just to reiterate, those things that we're taught are in the unseen. We take it all. We accept it all. Okay. Uh, but a natural consequence is to try to make sense of it in our language. And that's a realm of speculation. That's the, uh, the key point. And I'm also secondarily suggesting that we're in an era where a whole lot more questions have to be raised uh, because we're under the assumption that we're looking at the world and interacting with the world the same way that they did back then. And I'm suggesting we should not jump to that conclusion. They, they might've looked at the world 100% the same way we do, but I'm suspecting that there are some, some differences in the terms of what they, say and what they say and what they see and such. And so this relates to the question that uh, that Dr. Mahan raised, you know, like what if we explore the possibility that, that if I understood the question correctly, that angles are, you know, like states. I think uh, it should be explored, you know. When you start coming to conclusions and saying this is truth about the unseen, then you risk becoming an exclusivist, then you start becoming a sect. As opposed to scholarly speculation or just educated speculation, you know, explore. Any other questions or thoughts? Does anyone feel like, you know, we pull the ground from under them and their entire understanding of Dean has been completely lost or anything like that? Hopefully not. I'm still re-emphasizing the things we take as concrete. I'm just expanding on the possibilities. Okay, inshallah. Then, uh, if there are no other questions, uh, we're going to have even more with this, because pretty soon, in like two or three hours, we're going to start talking about black magic. Inshallah. Okay, so we will stop here. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, Omar Khadr, you have a a question?
4: Sorry, I have one, one quick question. Go for it. So I'm still thinking about the fact that once the revelation comes to the Prophet Wasallam, he automatically starts speaking. I feel yeah. like that's a little, like, I don't know, like, it sounds robotic. Like, that's that's the reason that I asked, like, is he conscious? Because if he's just, like, sitting there with, like, the Sahaba sitting next to him, and then, and then the revelation comes, and then he automatically starts speaking, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's just hard for me to understand, or, like, the way it's happening. You know what I'm saying? That's why I was asking, like, is he conscious of himself when it actually happens? And then he just comes out of the state of revelation and he's like, oh, okay, revelation just came. Or like, does he remember it happening? And that's how, if, if nobody's sitting around him, does he rem- remember it happening? And then he goes back to this hub, and he's like, revelation came. These are the new ayahs that, you know, are here or something like that.
1: So I don't know if I see a difference in the different versions you've told, but I, I, I will say that I think it's in Surah al where there's this reference to the Prophet peace on him, trying to make sure he remembers the ayahs, meaning like he has it memorized, locked in his head. And then he's told, this is not on you. You know, this is on us, meaning it's on Allah ta'ala to keep it preserved in you. Okay. And, and, uh, and so uh, what I, uh, so in terms of how the companions are describing Prophet, the Prophet peace on him in the moment of revelation, is that he is, you know, uh, he'll one day be, you know, he'll be resting his head on a companion's thigh, and and suddenly his head starts getting so heavy that the companion feels like his thigh is going to break. That's how heavy the prophet's head is getting, you know. And then uh, whatever state he's in, he comes out and he shares this revelation, right? Or he's sitting on a camel. And the camel's legs are buckling, four legs. The four legs are buckling. Okay, there, there's a camel. Are, are buckling, Good. and and then they realize okay he's receiving a revelation right now, you know, or you know he's in some sort of state and it's it's really really cold and he's just sweating like it's a hot day. And then he recites what he received. Is that what you're describing, Omar? but uh i am uh uh but i'm saying that's not wrong to call it robotic i mean except out of you know matters of manners but in the same way i'm speaking of the uh you know the angels as essentially being god's robots they say do uh, he says do and they do they have self-consciousness right they have self-awareness they have some volition but they uh but they can't disobey Allah. And I'm suggesting, in the context of revelation, peace be upon them, there's an element of that that is involuntary. you know, As involuntary as a muscle spasm is for me, the Prophet, peace be upon him, reciting, and that's probably the worst example, but the Prophet, peace be upon him, reciting in ayah. Uh, let's see, class recording camel X looks like, oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. Um, so the recordings have been, uh, in tinyurl.com slash pandemic. That's where the recordings have been. There aren't too many, uh, whiteboards and such as you've noticed. I haven't uh, done too many whiteboard, uh, notes here. Any other questions or thoughts? And I think, I mean, to, to take uh, Dr. Mohan's point uh, even further, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put words in his mouth, but I think I'm probably correct that he is suggesting that our possibility of understanding the deen could be radically transformed and still be wholly authentic. Yeah, yeah, exactly i think that's uh, that's an open question you know one of the things you know an interesting book is uh, shahab ahmad's dissertation on the history of the satanic verses so it's, uh, so the ayat of the gharanic can't pronounce it very well the eyes the of the cranes and he looks at this evolution of the teachings in, in our community or or interpretation of these 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 verses that the prophet peace be upon him allegedly received that turned out to be from shaitan. When he's receiving Surah An-Najm, he's reciting Surah An-Najm. And the story is that uh, the, the, the accursed devil gets on his tongue and then he recites these other passages. Okay? And then Jibreel comes to him and says, you recited something I didn't give you. Okay. Now, what's interesting is when you look at uh, what Shahab Ahmad is, is researching, uh, he's saying this was taught as the normal part of our tradition for like centuries. And then somewhere around the colonial period, I could be messing up the numbers, it stops getting taught you know, as though it never happened, even though it's in our books, just like the way the ahruf is not something that's commonly taught anymore, even though it's in our books. And, and so what I'm suggesting for us to consider is that especially when the colonial period was coming and we're getting dominated, like in the stuff Adnan was teaching in, in his class, that... For the sake of the protection of the ummah, the, the, the ulama shrunk the deen quite a bit. Okay. And law was pretty much still the same, but the Islamic imagination was shrunk quite a bit for the sake of protecting people. Okay. And we're in a point where all of that is getting unraveled just because of, you know, uh, um, I'm using the term liberalism in a positive way, not in a negative way. Liberalism, the idea being that, okay, all ideas are free to explore. And so, so as a result, there's a great need for, for further scholarly exploration for all these big questions, you know, uh, because in the same way those things were done to protect the ummah back then, that protection has sort of expired or is expiring more and more when people are discovering, okay, the story that I've been told is not quite what the story was. You know? And so I'm giving you a taste of that by saying, you know, well, how did the prophet actually receive revelation? Okay. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections about anything? Okay, uh, Iqbal, uh, you're giving me your email address, but I don't understand why. Uh, if you got a question?
5: Um, actually, a comment, or maybe you can call it a question. Um, kind of like connects to the point, the example that you were giving um, about how uh, Shaitan interrupted during the Surah Najm. And I was reading Surah Maryam and um, in Surah Baqarah early part, we studied that uh, Allah says that, you know, you are enemies of each other, right? So we said, okay, so this is humans and Satan, we are enemies. But then in Surah Maryam, It says um, uh, the shaitan is the enemy of Rahman, Mm
3: -hmm.
5: and um, you know I can't remember the actual ayah. And so uh, this example that you just gave triggered that um, ayah in my head. That shaitan is not only an enemy to us; maybe he's an enemy to Allah Taala as well, which Mm -hmm. which I don't think we discussed. yeah we didn't discuss
1: that you know but we did did discuss that he's blaming allah ta'ala for everything so your question is
5: that is he just an enemy to us or is uh, he also an enemy to allah ta'ala
1: i mean so uh i believe he's basically an enemy to all that is right and 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 so he is blaming allah ta'ala for his own plight and, and so he is trying to obstruct Taala's will knowing he cannot. But why are we being told he's our enemy? Because, okay, what is he going to do to Taala? He's not going to do anything to Taala, right? But for you and I, uh, we have to keep remembering that he is our relentless enemy. You see what I'm saying? So we're basically being told, okay, focus on this fact that he is your enemy. I don't know if that's answering your question or not.
5: I know. I don't know. I, I have to oh, okay. reflect a little bit more on that.
1: Um, I mean, is it fair to say that he's an enemy of the Prophet, peace be upon him? Sure. Yeah. And the and the Prophet is appointed by Allah Ta'ala, and he's also the beloved of Allah Ta'ala. So then if we take that logic, at least, then it follows that he's an enemy of Allah Ta'ala. Hmm. But the point is that uh, I do think at the very least, he's definitely blaming Allah Ta'ala. You made this happen to me. And because you did this, I'm going to sit on the straight path and take your your, troubl- your believers down. You know.
5: So it's an indirect enemy,
1: basically. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with saying he's a direct enemy, but I'm saying he's definitely at least an indirect enemy. But the more bigger question I'm asking is, what difference does it make? So is Allah an enemy of him? What do you think? Or if we change the words and say, is Allah displeased with him?
5: I think the second one is yeah. better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In, in some Christian theology, the actual fight is between God and the devil. Okay. In our theology, the fight is between humans and the devil. So, so I don't think that saying shaitan is the enemy of Allah, uh, has made Allah shaitan's enemy. Uh, I don't know that that necessarily means Allah has made himself shaitan's enemy. Shaitan is never out of the control of Allah ta'ala. This is yeah. theological speculation.
5: <laughs> Thanks for clarifying.
1: <laughs> if I did, inshallah. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions about anything at all? Nothing else, yes, Musab. Let's take a look. Um, speaking of the calf, the calf of Bani Israel was made. Was, was also capable of making sounds. And the man who proposed the idea stated that he incorporated some dirt from Hazla Gabriel's footprint. Yeah, it's a compl- it's a claim, something like that. Your question is. Um, just verifying the claim, meaning that, uh, the regarding Jabril's footprint, a.s. I don't know if that part is in the text, the part of using soil that is in the, in the, in the Quran itself, right? How did the sounds come in, uh, come through it? The common understanding is that they put holes and stuff so that the wind came kind of like a musical instrument and moment to your point, theological speculation. I'm, that's uh, part of the reason why I keep emphasizing the term speculation. Uh, it's not, it's, uh, uh, it should be kept as, uh, speculation as opposed to conclusions. That's why for a lot of, a lot of the points in the conversation over the course of these courses, I've said, you know, work with that as your thesis and then see, you know, see where it takes you. Uh, but be very cautious about coming to a conclusion. This is the truth. Unless a whole lot of people are agreeing with you without guns pointed to their heads or something.
3: So, so, speculation is like a form of waswasa.
1: Uh, speculation is at the risk of waswasa, but it's not necessarily waswasa. You know, like okay, so speculation is you know, is there an alternate parallel universe where time is moving backwards? That's speculation, right? Is that waswasa, not necessarily. You know, um, or you know, the Big Bang is an interpretation of data. That's in the realm of speculation. It's a theory. When it becomes a law, then we're saying no, it's beyond all that. You know, evolution is an interpretation of data.
2: Yeah. Also, I think speculation in the sense of conjecture, and so um, those people who are concerned with theological speculation, and there were people in history as well, they would say that you're making revelation say things it doesn't say. So don't speculate.
1: Yeah, that is the school of theology. The Afari school of theology is essentially that. Saying basically, we're not really going to take any stances on anything. You know, we got the text and then we're done. And if that works so What for is you, the benefit? Say it again.
3: What is the benefit for going into the, the field of speculation?
1: So and search for what? Okay, so do you believe evolution happened? Yeah. You do? Why? I don't know. Mossab, do you believe evolution happened? <laughs> so, so the point is somebody has to go into those fields to try to figure out an answers to those questions. Yeah, Mossab says no. I knew Mossab was gonna say no.
2: Well also I think one of the things is that there at least our scholars in history said it wasn't for it's not for everybody. This is not something you have to do. Yeah. But some people probably should do it. Yes. so that they can protect the community from questions that might arise for which answers should be readily available.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. We will see this. We're going to raise this question again when we get into black magic. You know, the question being, why are the angels teaching these people black magic? You know, and it's very similar to this exact point. Somebody has to study this stuff. Somebody yeah, has I'm- to figure out answers to these questions.
3: And that, that's the reason is the Nasir and is keep coming to my mind during all those discussions that, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the area is, 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 uh, but, you know, uh, how, how can we know that, you know, those people are teaching and, and looking into the world of speculation, they have a same conclusion, mostly they're not right. And then which one to be followed and which one will be the close to guidance to the community or the larger, larger community i would say so just uh,
1: um, i mean that's sorry. Go ahead, Keep going.
3: yeah so so i'm saying that you know that because you that, that then one speculation if you answer that one there's going to open another one and that's that's like a it's like a reciprocal right then you can keep going into that direction and then you know there's a different viewpoints came out of of this smaller groups and that may cause more confusion rather than clarification Mm-hmm. or unity or answers of the unity of this among the community as well as the forces coming after the community or is- Islam or Muslims to get the answers or to play around with that. So, I-, I don't
1: know. I mean, So, I mean, I'm going to summarize what I think you're saying. This is one of the criticisms that Imam al-Hazali gave to the philosophers. So he has his big book, you know, what is it, Incoherence of the Philosophers. And you know, he has all these categorical points where he's on the attack, but one of his first points, which is more in the preface, is that you guys are sharing ideas with the masses that they can't handle. Okay. And that's essentially what you're talking about, uh, Dr. Malahith. that if these ideas are going to the masses, this is gonna mess them up. Just like you know, when we were discussing the Ahrof way back then, I, I made the point to everyone, this is not dinner time conversation. You know, when we talked about, you know, the prophet, he's not receiving ahruf If you start saying this to people, you're gonna mess them up. You know?
2: Try it at it Sari. People will start throwing food. <laughs> exactly.
1: yeah. so, so the point is that... Uh, no, know, but my question is that,
3: you know, that what is the guide, guiding principle to get into this world and came out successfully with some fruitful answers to help not only to you to progress, but also help towards the community?
1: I mean, the short answer would be stick to what is concrete, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to what is hypothetical. What do you think? And this easy when you get into the academia? I mean, academia is a different world. Academia is all about ideas. Uh, Leith, you had a question.
4: Uh, yeah, just a quick one. So for defining or for saying that like a mainstay of Aqidah is that it avoids speculation. Uh, without speculation, how do we arrive at like varying Aqidahs that either include or disclude uh, certain
1: aspects of concrete belief? So so essentially Aqidah in theory is trying to minimize interpretation. So speculation, within speculation, we have interpretation, which is basically here's what the text is saying. Okay. And it's trying to err on the side of being literal. Okay. But it's not answering the question of how. It's answering the question of what is there. Okay. But not how does it operate. Okay. Unless Allah Ta'ala is telling us this is how it operates. But more often than not, Allah Ta'ala is saying, this is a true thing. There are angels. Okay. There is revelation. There is a day of judgment. He tells us some hows about the day of judgment, like this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. But the speculation comes in, okay, well, what order is that gonna happen in? On the one hand, we're standing before Allah, answering for all of our choices, and heaven and hell are gonna seem to come closer and closer to us. On the other hand, we're paying each person back for what they owe them, what we owe them. On the other hand, we're walking across the Sidat. you know, and hell is below, and there's these claws coming up, trying to pull people down. Uh, If we try to put it together, then that becomes more outside of aqtida. Okay, that's in Usuluddin and Kalam, because that's the speculation.
3: So, speculation is more close to more like assumptions?
1: It's, it's basically, yeah, I think interpretation is probably just the best word. You know? So,
3: and then then you can, you can develop the framework based upon the assumption, but following the guardrail, what you just described, yeah. more like a concrete, right? That's what you're saying?
1: Yeah, but I mean, for example, <clears throat> You know, all the things that are going to happen on the day of judgment. What does a lay person need to know? You're going to be held to account for your choices. That's what the lay person needs to know. But we have so many passages in the Quran and especially in the Hadith about all these things that are going to happen on the day of judgment. Um, And it could be all of those things are literally describing the exact same thing. Or it could be that first there's this event, and then there's this event, then there's this event, then there's this event, then there's this event, then
3: there's this event. So so you're saying the sequence of event is is critical
1: in order to get into the end state? No, I'm saying the sequence of the events is interpretation. Right. The fact of the events, that's concrete. Right. Okay, good. Yeah. Laith, what do you think?
4: yeah i follow um i, I think the, the distinction i just i wanted to kind of resolve is like why do certain aqidas include like let's say tahawi for example yeah. include things
1: that another aqida would not and
4: they're both yeah. saying this
1: is what you must believe
4: in order so, to have sound
1: so some of that i do believe is is entirely socially or historic it's it relates to their point in history that they're at you know and the example i gave is is the uh, the creation of the Quran, you know it was not a, a matter of aqidah because it was not a question for anybody, but became because it became such a divisive issue, okay, um, you know, uh, that, that these particular scholars decided we have to actually make a stance on what this is. Or even take a step back, why does Abu Hanifa even start with this as a whole idea? So he sort of looked at it as a guy who started theology, al-fiqh al-akbar, right? and. And so he is seeing people in his time who are self-identifying as Muslim, but he's seeing some fundamental problems in what they're preaching. And so thus he's writing this saying, okay, when we look at our primary sources, this is what is concrete. Anything outside of this sheet is, is you know, or anything outside of this list, these couple of paragraphs is either speculation or contradiction, but this is what is concrete in our material. So if you were to go through Al-Fikh al-Akbar, without the commentary, you'll think this is super basic. Yeah, everybody knows this. But he's saying this is an issue today. So if I'm in Islam in Chicago, there are people who are saying God came in the form of a man, uh, Fard Muhammad, who appointed Elijah Muhammad as his messenger and says that there's no day of judgment. So that's gonna mean that I'm gonna to have to take a stance and say, no, the day of judgment is a physical thing, it is not a metaphorical thing. See what I'm saying? That if this was if we wrote an Akida book for Chicago in 2020, because there are people who are self identifying as Muslim who are making claims that, in my understanding, are dead wrong.
3: So yeah. so is um, so what you're saying that you know if you can take like Tahavi and uh, the, the baseline the, the, before we describe his work as a legacy in, in, the, in the recent past, the only institution level work happened is only Deuban, right? I think is any other example available which, and the institution level, someone able to answer those questions or get into the Ulumuddin and Aqidah?
1: Well, I mean, I think we find it you know all across the, the Muslim world. Is it working okay. to the satisfaction yeah. of what people need? That's a different issue. But you know, uh Deoband is one, uh Ulama is another, Aligar is another, and then the other old schools, Azhar, Fez, you know, everything else, you know, the great individual teachers. I think there's a lot of people who do explore these questions. You know, I don't know if they do it successfully, that's a different issue. You know. I mean
3: So you say if you- it's definitely to put like Tarul Qasim and the institution we have in Chicago and area into that
1: category too, or Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Sheikh Amin especially tries to answer these questions. You know, you know. I mean, a lot of his focus is more on bioethics, you know, whereas someone else, her focus will be on financial questions and such. Uh, but you know, maybe not as many people are focused on the really abstract questions, but even to give you an idea of how big, like what is, you know, I've mentioned before, one of the most common questions I get is free will and predestination. And I haven't listened to the lecture, but in that series that I spoke in, uh, the day after me was Sheikh Kifah, and he gave a whole lecture about Qadar. You know, and I'm sure he did it because he gets those questions all the time from people. Free will predestination. Any other questions? Nothing else? Okay, that's it. That's it. That's it, inshallah. Okay, we'll stop right here, inshallah. And once again, no class tomorrow, no class Sunday. We will reconvene, inshallah, on Monday, Memorial Day weekend, inshallah. Uh, Monday, same time. Oh, yeah, we can also discuss if you'd like a different time slot. Let's tentatively do the same time slot right now. Because if you remember back then, our, our, our classes were at 8 30. Chicago time. Yeah, Chicago.
3: So Omar, you have a, another class. you 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 said you're gonna start for the Rumi. Is any anything happening for that one or uh,
1: So let's Ask get the, let's get uh, Ahmed Abzal's class started first, okay. and and uh, yeah, I'm ready to start the Rumi class whenever, literally whenever, you know. But I'm thinking um, um the let's start the uh, uh, Ahmed Abzal's class. We'll we'll uh, we'll try to give more details this coming week. And a bunch of people have emailed me. Uh, uh, Iqbal, if you look at Taki Usmani's book, Approaching the Quranic Sciences, he has a whole chapter on the Ahruf. And I forgot which chapter it is. Um, and I just, I think uh, uh, Ramya, I think uh, uh, I sent you that info, so I don't know if you have it right off the top of your head. Um, but otherwise, you know, I mean, I'll, tell you, I'll give you all and you know, all of us uh, a successful remainder of Ramadan. And I appreciate your patience staying online for this super long class. And uh, may Allah tell, I give you all a Mubarak filled Eid. And we'll see you, inshallah, Monday. Subhanahu wa ta'ala wa ta'ala wa ta'ala wa bihamdika anta wa